Hello, everyone. Welcome to Changing Reels. I'm Andrew Hathaway of Can't Stop the Movies. And I'm Courtney Small from Cinematics. The two of us are looking to create a new cinematic canon, one that reflects the growing diversity of our world. Each episode will feature two short films selected by myself and Courtney, then a feature-length film we feel should be considered canon in cinema. Courtney, lead us off with the first short of the day. Oh, well, my pick for today is a film called Real Talk. It's by Patrick Ng, and it was his thesis film for, I guess, when he was in NYU film school. And it's a film about two friends, one black, one Asian. Their friendship has a bit of a riff when one of the fellows, Iggy, decides to hang with a different crew. The film you're following Pax as he is trying to navigate the diversity and the cultural landscape of New York and seeing his once best bud now hanging with a different crew and the stereotypes that often come with Asian Americans in the world. I had to take a break after I watched this for the first time and kind of walk around to clear my thoughts. While my thoughts are clearing for discussion, what is it that struck you about Real Talk and why you wanted to discuss it here? This is a film that I originally saw at the, I guess, 2012 Real Asian Film Festival here in Toronto. It was one that instantly struck me. Um, part of it was just the look of it. I was surprised that this was a thesis film because when you think of student films, you, you often think of shot editing, lack of visual flair. And as we're seeing more and more, these students are coming out of film school already polished. And I liked the notion of how Ng approaches the breaking of the stereotypes, especially when it comes to Asian Americans. You have Pax as a character who is constantly calling out some of the things that people expect from him. He's none of that. He's down with hip hop culture. He seems to be the typical New Yorker. Got a bit of attitude just into everything, but there's constant markers that keep saying and throughout the film that other look at him as an Asian who should be running a Chinese restaurant type of thing. And the rage that builds inside of him, especially after Iggy abandons him, was, was fascinating to watch. When it starts off, you think it's just going to be a film about two friends kind of goofing off, and then it takes this really dark turn, and it's a very interesting character study. It's the craft behind this movie, Real Talk, that hit me hard. When I was going through Spike Lee's movies with Kyle and in Real Talk, we get a Spike Lee almost direct visual call out when we get a double dolly shot towards the end with Pax after he's resolved the conflict in his own way. Looking at it, it's rigorously structured, but watching it, it has the feel of someone spinning a story as they're walking around the block. Quite literally, in Real Talk, we watch Pax as he's walking around the block telling us in the audience that we shouldn't expect stereotypes here. We shouldn't expect people to act like they're supposed to act. Real Talk definitely paid dividends with that in ways I didn't expect. The one that hit me the most was close to about the five-minute mark. When Pax and Iggy take a moment and we get to see their friendship purely, and it's another referential shot in a way because they're framed against the Brooklyn Bridge, much like Woody Allen was in Manhattan. But instead of the Manhattan single focus, where it was so dark and clear that it was all about them. The way that the camera moved around the two as they broke into this great dance just showed that for that moment, they were completely in sync with each other and the city. 
kind of going back to the Spike Lee connection, he actually made a pilot, which was not picked up, but then edited together into a film called Sucker Free City, which was about the white, black, and Chinese convergence in L.A. I kind of wish that they had picked that up because that was a really solid film. Yeah, towards the end, especially when they were dealing with the ghosts of the city and the lingering presence of how we've manipulated labor here in the States, that's ultimately what really struck me about Real Talk was that both Pax and Iggy have these pressures to act a specific way. Then when neither one of them acts a specific way, either with Pax when he's just trying to eat and the suspicious glares that he gets, or with Iggy who does not stick up for his friend at all and then ends up paying a price that seems disproportionate to everything else but symbolically hits like a ton of bricks that kind of new york filmmaking that immediately gets you into the rhythm of these lives and by the end i mean we don't even get pax's full emotional brunt it just cuts off goes straight to credits right when he's screaming so this was an impressive pick for our first episode, my friend. Yeah, it's one that stuck with me, and I've watched it a couple of times since seeing it at the festival, especially since they've released it online. And one thing about that final moment, just before you see him screaming and releasing some of that bent-up rage, is he sees his mother, and he looks at her almost ashamed of what he has done. Ashamed that he has to be forced to be two individuals, be one way with her at home, and then one way with Iggy on the street. And it's interesting that New York itself is such a multicultural place, especially how it's portrayed in this film, you would think that you would have more scenes like the one on the bridge. They'd be more harmonious in New York and they still have those racial divides that need to be mended. Something that we're still definitely struggling with here in the States, and I know across the world as well, but me being in America and a huge fan of Spike Lee, this movie made me realize how on point he was with Sucker Free City. Even in the dialogue throughout Real Talk, Pax, when he's addressing us and the audience initially, he keeps asking us, why does it matter what my nationality is if we all look the same to you? Later on, it showed how universal, through Pax's dialogue, those feelings of abandonment or estrangement or, well, to, to use a, a very cinematic term, lost in translation, they are when he said, well, I wish my dad was still around, but he had to go and get deported. Fucking around with those Mexican bus boys. Nobody ever listens to me. I wanted to make sure that I wrote that down as soon as I heard it, because that seemed to encompass how America, for all its melting pot propaganda, forces any kind of foreigner to conform to this idea that they are going to be estranged from any kind of supporting family figure or anything like that, which is also why I love how Real Talk continued to call back to the mother. Even if there should have been kind of a give or take there, the mother was kind of a calming presence to Pax. That's why that disappointment at the end hits so hard, because she's still someone who moved here hoping for a better life. And I, I know I'm assuming a bit here, but it's still the disappointment. It's still there, and Pax is going to live with that. And that's all I got for <laughs> if you've got anything else, hit me with it. No, I think we've covered this film adequately. What about the short that you picked for this week? 
my short film is not as dramatically potent, but in its own way deals with stereotypes and how we look at them. I kind of took a pseudo-lazy way out in looking for shorts to discuss for our first episode here, because I was hoping to find Justin Lin's short films. Instead, I found out that Justin Lin, which I should have expected given his success, is hosting his own short film competition. I stumbled through those films to try and figure out, okay, what kind of suits my vibe here and i got to evidence which reminded me a lot of next floor from our villainous series it's directed and produced by uh michi Don, the assistant producer and screenplay was written by stephanie i and it's basically a two and a half minute perfect looney tunes cartoon working against common stereotypes you have the shooter who is a larger white woman then the accomplice who is a man bumbling around with a burger with way too many condiments. And the big thing about evidence is the blocking and the framing and the way one reveal bleeds into the other. My first big laugh was after the shot. The woman is standing there, her gun is still smoking, and then off to the side, her Asian accomplice is peeking his head out, takes a huge bite of that burger to begin with. So this was something that definitely played more on a joyful level, while still acknowledging how it was using the images, but I loved it. And that's just my thoughts on the first, I guess, 20 seconds or so. How'd you feel about it? It was interesting because I enjoyed it, but I didn't love it as much as I thought I was going to at the beginning. Part of it is because I was wishing Mishi Wei Don had given us a little more backstory into why the individual was shot. The humor is a big part of this film, and especially with the sloppy burger and how that hinders the evidence and hinders their getaway. And and the whole time I kind of wanted to know a bit more about their connection and also the connection to the killer. I know it's only a two-minute short, and it does achieve what it sets out to in terms of establishing the humorous beats, but I kind of wish that there was a little more backstory. That's a really curious viewpoint. I think that for the short as it is, it works really well with the humorous beats. So I wonder what it is about a backstory that you think would add to it or give a little muscle to it. It starts off with a noir femme fatale tone. The humor comes in and it was because there's not much dialogue and even when the cops come in at the end and show the evidence, things like, okay, I understood what the story was trying to achieve and how the premise is basically they're trying to commit the perfect crime but the dude's hunger at that particular moment hinders them from possibly getting away with the perfect crime but even the fact of like, well why does he have the burger? Like, it's a humorous moment but there has to be something to that character that would imply that because the entire time he's just chewing away as if nothing's happening she's trying to get things cleared up and he's just there chewing away and it's amusing but at the same time i want to know well okay what is it about his character that decided at that particular time i'm really hungry and i have to eat and even with her what is her connection to the accomplice right like those are the things that was going through my mind watching it because i remember and i think it was in the ocean series or pretty much any brand Brad Pitt movie. Brad Pitt always is eating, and somehow he, he tries to make eating essential to the character, but it's not the main focal point. It's always you watch a, a film, whether it be Burn After Reading or Moneyball, and his character is always eating. 
for some particular reason, but you still know a lot more about that character. Here, in the brief time, I was like, well, this guy, all I know about him is he likes burgers or whatever he, he was eating. And for her, I was really interested to know what led her to kill this particular individual. Even if it was just a slightly bit longer, I would have just loved one or two lines just to establish that connection a bit better. And that's where I'm kind of curious about what we expect from these shorts, because obviously your short Real Talk was almost five times longer than evidence here. But here, obviously, it's not going to give you a intense wealth of detail in a really short amount of time. And the photography, as little as we get of it, we get these great close-ups, either at the beginning with the medium shot of the shooter and her accomplice, or the finality of death with the extreme horizontal shot of corpse, or <laughs> later on, as we get a long shot of the accomplice spreading all of his condiments on the corpse. I guess I'm a little confused as to what you were looking for here. Is there something that in the time constraints, or is this just one of those things where you kind of just wish it was fleshed out? I think it was more I wished it was fleshed out. You can do a lot in a short period of time. We've seen some great shorts that are two minutes, you know, minute and a half, and can tell a great narrative. This one, it's humorous. As a funny short, it works perfectly. It achieves all those goals. But considering the type of short it was, I don't know, maybe how it started out, I was just expecting a little more in terms of substance. Maybe if I watch it again, just strictly as a humorous short, I'll probably enjoy it as much as I did the first point. But I think there were some moments where they were focusing on him eating, where those times or those valuable seconds could have been used to flesh out the dynamics between the individuals. I don't know. The way it shifts from the standard lens framing to the fisheye of the shooter when she's panicking as the accomplice spills all his stuff, and then the way it switches back to more of the flat framing as the accomplices, and this is still my favorite shot of the short, when he starts screaming in, not agony, but I guess maybe despair, and the only thing that we get are his hands in the bottom half of the frame, and the top half is her face in total disillusionment from the situation. I guess visually speaking, I was pressed by compactly how we get one perspective from the other. The accomplice, especially with the way that the hands enter the frame in that great moment, is literally an accomplice. You know, his prime shot, his moment of emotional turmoil, is how it affects her. With the fisheye lens shot, <laughs> you've got her freaking out right on the ground over this mess that her accomplice has made, but her accomplice isn't in the shot. I think this will be really cool to explore moving forward as we both select different shorts. Obviously, yours was extremely accomplished, and I loved it. And then with evidence here, when I consider the shots, the basic framing of the partners in there, and it's two minutes, two and a half minutes, it achieves a similar level of storytelling. Oh yeah, I think as we move forward, I don't want to make it seem like I only value serious and, and long shorts, because <laughs> I, 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 can, I can enjoy silly, and I, you know, and I did enjoy this one. I think this was one of those films where I wish it was a bit longer, because I think 
there's so much story to tell. Even if she was to do a prequel or what have you and just expand on this, there's a lot to tell. That's why my mind was going in that direction. But we're going to have some silly shorts. We're going to have some serious ones. We might even have some that are based on real subject matter. So we're going to run the gamut on this. Absolutely. And I think that the great thing about this short focus is that the folks involved in Real Talk have gone on and been able to continue cinematic careers. My short film pick for the week, Evidence, it was published at least on youtube barely a month ago from what my screen is telling me it was published on july 15th of this year so when we pick short films moving forward it's as an encouragement even if we're not entirely on board with them i'm completely on board with both of the shorts for this week i think it they both have a good kind of through line with Better Luck Tomorrow, which we'll be discussing shortly. That's the exciting thing about this. We get to look at young artists or older artists who are having their hand tested with short films and just enjoy the results. Yeah, and I think it's going to fit in perfectly. Even with the film that we're about to talk about, I discovered Justin Lin because of this film, seeing him and his entire cast at the Toronto International Film Festival back in what, 2002. It's kind of interesting that a lot of people came to him when his career obviously blew far up, but seeing what he was back then and the potential and seeing where he is now, we're going to see that with these shorts. I'm sure Patrick Ng is going to be doing other films, and I'm sure Mishi Wei Don will be doing stuff that we'll be coming back to as well. Both positive, optimistic views of the future and in line with changing reels. So, a bit of a break, and then we'll be discussing Better Luck Tomorrow by Justin Lin. Now it's time for the feature length of our first episode, Better Luck Tomorrow, directed by Justin Lin, written by Lin and Fabian Marquez, cinematography by Patrice Lucien Cochette. It's also one of the movies that is part of the MTV Films brand, which has had, all things considered, a remarkable success rate, both in terms of artistic and commercial impact. So with Justin Lin's Better Luck Tomorrow, Courtney, you were the one who suggested this as our first episode. Watching it again, I think I have an understanding as to why, but why don't you walk us through your process? When we were coming up with the show and what we wanted to achieve, we had both commented about how we wanted to highlight works that were underappreciated or for some reason got lost in the discussion in terms of the greater pop culture significance. And Justin Lin is a director who just recently had Star Trek Beyond released. He, I would argue, single-handedly saved the Fast and the Furious franchise. Not only saved it, but catapulted it. And he's got his hands so entrenched in pop culture. You know, he directed the paintball episode of Community. He's the executive producer of that show, Scorpion, which I think is on its like second season. He's one of those guys that is one of the influential players in Hollywood. Yet he still doesn't quite get the respect that he deserves. And this is a film that I find a lot of people either haven't seen or simply don't talk about when they think of Justin Lin. You automatically think Fast and Furious 5 or now Star Trek. And I mean, he's doing the new Jason Bourne film with Jeremy Renner and Matt Damon. So he's doing a lot of big things and everyone thinks of him for like over-the-top action and blockbuster fun, but he can also tell really interesting and engaging stories. And this was a film I saw back at TIFF, as I mentioned before, and this is, I guess, his second film. I still haven't seen his first one. And this one really struck me. I think the day I saw this, I was watching five different films. It was a first year I'd attempted to do more than three films at TIFF and this was the one that at the end of the day stuck out to me and it's one that even 
watching again, I still enjoy. And I could see how Better Luck Tomorrow, out of all the other movies, would stick out for you, especially in a busy festival day, because there are so many great little jokes in it that resonate both on the universal high school level and a very specific Asian American level. The only thing I'll take issue with with what you said there is I don't feel like Justin Lin saved the Fast and Furious franchise. They went from the Fast and the Furious to John Singleton's Too Fast, Too Furious, which umped the neon, umped the homoerotic subtext, umped the ludicrous factor, and I love it for that. But Tokyo Drift, it feels like the third film, which is the first one Justin Lin directed, is the black sheep of them all. And that's where he introduces a character to an unfamiliar environment. And we see with Better Luck Tomorrow, how weird even our normal environments are, and how Justin Lin could have gone through this fantastical franchise and reinvented it as a way for different cultures to communicate. Because one of the images that really struck with me throughout Better Luck Tomorrow were these oil wells just digging and digging and digging. We see that initially with Ben, and when he's narrating his blase, pretty atypical for him and anyway, suburban lifestyle, and we just see this oil well pounding into the ground in his neighborhood. Then when he goes back to his high school, beyond the wall, we see an oil well pounding in. And throughout Better Luck Tomorrow, we see how Ben and his friends manipulate this idea that they are people beyond the tracks, beyond quote-unquote saving or anything like that. This chugging engine of progress in this case, monetary gain, is established in a subtle way early on because of those oil pumpers. So I'll get into more of how the camera movements and the general action of Better Luck Tomorrow led to Lin's success in the Fast and Furious franchise. But this whole alien environment, even when it's the neighborhood that you grew up in, is something that's prevalent in Better Luck Tomorrow. So I'm curious if you picked up on anything like that. Yeah, and I think that the oil well imagery is an interesting one because for Ben and most of the main characters, their goal is to at least achieve a certain academic level. It's almost expected of them as the Asians in the school to be top marks in everything. And you see that, I think they even make a reference to as long as they got straight A's, they were allowed to do whatever they wanted. While they tried to in every single club known to man and achieve A-level status, they took great pleasure in being bad and almost trying to be every that they're not expected to be. That's one of the things I loved about this film. It plays like a typical 90s high school comedy, but over the course of the film, it gets increasingly dark and their actions have some severe consequences. You don't normally get that from the type of lighthearted teen movie. Like, sure, he wants to get the girl and he's got his goofy friend Virgil, but as you're watching this film and you're seeing that, yeah, on one hand, he wants to achieve those great statistics so that you can, when he goes to Harvard, they'll look at his application and say, oh, he's checked off all the supposed boxes. You've also got this whole crime element that's interesting, this drug element. One of my favorite moments in this film is when Virgil is in the back of the car and they're all talking tough. And I think this is just after the incident at the 
party and they come across some real gangsters in the car beside them and Virgil is not even noticing them and he's trying to talk all tough and you can see that he's trying to keep his composure from not crying not showing that he's really weak inside while the other guys are noticing the real gangbangers are right beside them the guys who aren't afraid to open gun and shooting so no matter how bad they think they are in their minds you realize they're still not as bad as what's going on in the real world their idea of the world is just as skewed as people's views of them are that's one of the moments i made a really specific note of because it's the perfect blend of dialogue and visuals as you mentioned the ben crew they're trying to be tough they're not as tough as they think and that's one of the reasons that the climax is so horrifying because it takes so many cowards to overcome someone who is tough in this case steve who we'll talk about in a moment who is my favorite character in the movie they have that moment where it's the image is breaking down against the reality and and building on that, there was a great moment shortly after Ben has a pseudo-successful date with his love interest that Han is basically the fall guy because Virgil is not competent in the drug game. I mean, that's just really obvious early on because he is the lapdog, more or less, for everyone else in the crew. But there's a line of dialogue about Virgil and Han's reaction to that where he says he was babbling to so many people the school had to do something about it and i'm curious if you see this in canada as well but to me it spoke to a very american mindset of how the white male norm expects all minorities to behave because it wasn't so much that they were doing this stuff it was that Virgil was becoming proud of it and that's one of the most heartbreaking subplots of Better Luck Tomorrow because we have the moment where Virgil becomes the candy selling king and he gets a disc player that I mean, he could buy tons of these. He's already well off. He already has a lot of status in his own way in the community. So he could buy a bunch of this stuff. But it was this token that showed he could be in some way better for his community outside himself than other people that breaks his heart. Going back to that line, he was babbling to so many people. It just piles on how those expectations, and again, I'm speaking in an American mindset here hurt everyone Ben if he didn't have these ideas of what he was supposed to be he might be more comfortable with himself like Steve was Virgil might not have been so obsessed with these status points Han may not have gone to a self-destructive streak going into the Fast and Furious franchise so I'm curious what you think and if there's a cultural similarity here or if not a cultural divide. It's interesting because I don't know if it was necessarily a cultural divide in that particular instance. Like when I think of the CD and Virgil's reaction to when the CD player gets broken, I looked at it more as him finally one-upping the rest of the group. They refer to him at one point as the puppy who keeps shitting on things. 
throughout the entire film, Virgil's always trying to prove he can be better than Ben and better than Derek. And he's always upset when he's left out of things, when everyone goes to Ben because Ben's the more level-headed one. So I saw the Displayer incident as his one moment to shine and the one prize or medal, if you will, and it immediately gets broken by those who he's been trying to surpass. So that's what I found interesting. And if, if you really look at Virgil and then look at all of the guys, they're all trying to be better than who they perceive their rivals to be or to be the next person. Like Ben wants to be better than Steve so that he can get Stephanie. They look at Steve, they joke about him trying to be like a Hollywood actor coming in on his BMW bike and whatnot. They're always, everyone's kind of looking at the next person. And in many ways, that's high school summed up. In high school, you're still trying to find and define yourself and you're always comparing yourself to others. What I find interesting, though, is when you add the cultural aspect, the reason why they had to kick Han out is Han was one of those top students. And because he was a top student, I'm sure they were giving those guys far more leeway than they do the regular troublemakers. But it got to the point where even the administration said, OK, we can't keep going on because Virgil keeps running his mouth. So we have to do something. Even that moment where Han's beating up Virgil, the way how it's shot is so interesting. Because that's, I think, the only time you really get any bit of slow-mo in the film and you really see each punch as if you've ruined the image. The bubble that we were trying to create is now burst and they're starting to see us for who we really are and that can't happen. So for me, this was a lot more about perception and especially perceptions of Asian Americans in the school systems and also perceptions within modern youth. All those guys, Ben's entire crew, they all basically want to have that kind of gangster mentality and when you look at a lot of teens nowadays and you hear them talk to one another, they're talking with a lot of the slang and a certain attitude you know they picked up from elsewhere from popular culture they're trying to be that tough individual and you look at them you're like you're putting on a front they may not realize that the older folks can see it but so i think this film still resonates today just because of the way how it captures youth and the appeal of trying to be someone that you're not and better luck tomorrow with those feelings of alienation and looking to someone else who in some ways is your superior that's why steve is still my favorite character in the movie that taps into a universal aspect of high school of just people wanting to be someone else those people who want to be someone else they usually go off to college and in college they're free to reinvent themselves and figure out who they are with better luck tomorrow they're still stuck in this powder keg they still have to conform to these ideas of what people expect them to be it's that powder keg aspect that makes lynn and cochet's photography amazing it's easy to imagine justin lynn as an action director after better luck tomorrow because there is not a moment where the camera is moving that it doesn't have a purpose one of my favorite moments at the end was when derek and virgil are killing steve and we get the 360 rotational shot that we see from michael bay when he is trying to enhance an action movie moment here the 360 shot that is usually high energy and a very tense moment 
moment is dedicated solely to killing Steve. And that was, I think, what made Better Luck Tomorrow kind of like a, a unique American experience to me. Because Better Luck Tomorrow came out after Bad Boys 2, which had probably the best example of that 360 rotational shot with Martin Lawrence and Will Smith standing off against the bad guys against a wall. Here it's repurposed as almost an act of survival. What happens to Steve is an absolute sin, period. But the whole structure of Better Luck Tomorrow and how those cinematic techniques, like the speed ramping that you mentioned with Han and Virgil having this, what in other movies might be a climactic fight scene is just a normal day in their lives. These climaxes, they're not special. It's just an act of survival. And that's what made me feel for everyone in Better Luck Tomorrow instead of thinking of anyone as like a clear villain or a clear hero. Yeah, they're definitely all damaged in their own way and well before the incident with Steve. And the fact that Steve was your favorite character, interesting because as much posturing as he has, you see that the he's being damaged by his parents' expectations. Everyone else is being damaged by the expectations more so of the academic world and the financial world. And for him, it's come closer to home because I think he's the only one that you really get true reference to their parents outside of Stephanie and her situation. So I'm interested to hear why you like Steve so much. I guess the reason that I really enjoy Steve as a character over all the others is that he's someone who wants to better himself in the circumstances that he's in and then wants to grow out of that. There's a scene late in Better Luck Tomorrow where Steve recognizes everyone is obsessed with Stephanie. Ben is, Derek is, everyone wants to get with Steve's girl. Steve sees everyone for who they are in that exact moment. And one of the big lines of dialogue is at one of the last parties where Steve looks at Derek, and I may be misquoting it here, I can't believe you're a good guy. Steph thought you were a stalker or something. Steve sees these people for who they are. While his relationship with Stephanie is a negative mark against Steve, it still conforms to the high school stereotype that they're all expected to stand up to. Being the academic superiors, having all the club affiliations, sports affiliations, everything like that. And Steve stands apart from that, which is why one of the most affecting moments in Better Luck Tomorrow for me was when Steve goes with Ben to a batting cage. And it's also one of the most visually dynamic. The baseball is followed by the camera every time. When Steve hits it, it resets to its base. And then we see it again, fly forward. Steve hits it, goes back to its base. Versus Ben's perspective, where he can barely see Steve through the fence, and it goes from day to night to day to night. Visually speaking, you get this amazing moment in that batting cage. Steve is sure of who he is and what he wants to shake people out of, which is what's the climax of the movie. He wants to take everyone away from their complacency. He is someone who is strong enough, either with Steph or with Ben or with his parents to hit them out of that complacency. 
I guess I crammed a lot of reasons as to why I like Steve in there, both character and visual-wise, and I hope I answered your question. No, no, it's an interesting angle, because I know Steve is, from the nature of, like, how he treats Stephanie, there's a lot of people who automatically dislike Steve, but I don't think he's a bad guy. I find it interesting that they want to ultimately teach Steve a lesson, but in their action, he still ends up teaching them. And through the entire film, he's all, as you said, he's seeing people for what they are and calling them out for it. Yeah, and it's that moment of honesty that hits me as true to high school life. Most of the characters in Better Luck Tomorrow, I imagine they could be writing a blog about how they're a nice guy and how the girl doesn't recognize them. Even Han, who, as aloof as he is, is one of the more empathetically interesting characters throughout Better Luck Tomorrow. But Steve is the one who is interested in shaking folks from the cycle. But Ben and Virgil and Derek and Han, they're more interested in keeping the cycle on. I don't know, it's kind of a depressing look at high school in general, how it prepares you to be the man or woman that you're going to be in college. Especially with the earlier scene with Virgil and the cashier, he recognizes her and tries to relate her back to high school, but that punctures their bubble in a way. Did that stand out for you, or was there anything else that really hit? That one did stand out for me as well, but there's a lot that I found interesting in this film, especially how the way the characters are perceived, because Han and Derek, even though they don't get as much screen time as Ben and Virgil, interesting in their own ways, Han seems to be the easygoing will go with the flow but when push comes to shove is willing to step up where Derek I think Derek almost wanted to be Steve in the way how he was always part of every club and had to the was it the decathlon of academics that he had everyone training for and I found him to be more of a villain than how Steve is I guess perceived to be early on especially the moments when he was doing the article for the school paper and there's that great line where Ben confronts him after he basically wrote this whole article of how the school is not letting the one Asian basketball player on the team play and Ben was like well didn't you get the coach's opinion on maybe there was a reason he said yeah I heard what the coach said I got his stuff but I didn't like what he said so I left it out the story he's always trying to shape and redefine things in, in his own image and his own viewpoint I found it interesting the way how he's the one that kind of snaps at the party as well leading up to that whole scene in the car with Virgil and to me he was the one that was really the big villain the pusher if you will of that group Virgil is definitely more looked down upon amongst the of people but I thought Derek was the way how Derek is captured in this film was really interesting and I think he perpetuates a lot of the myths and you could see him being in a corporate high level position just for quote unquote playing the role but not caring enough and it's interesting that Stephanie thought of him as a stalker or the creepy one because you do get that vibe that he's just not right he'll do whatever it takes to live up to an image that he definitely does not have his letterman jackets for what was like tennis or something or I forget exactly but it wasn't what you would normally expect someone who got a letterman jacket to have I love that. Derek's reasoning throughout all this is definitely the most shallow, and he always seems to be someone who is going to let whatever tragedy just transpassed, or even what success just transpassed, kind of wash over him. The many party scenes that Derek oversees when they're cramming together for the decathlon, Derek is almost a passive observer. I say almost because he is just in 
interested enough to keep things moving in the wrong direction. Something I noticed here, the women aren't exploited. Stephanie is very much her own independent character from everyone else. Give or take a music to hump to CD, which I think is a strength point for her, but I could see some discussion differences otherwise. But the moment in the house where Derek is overseeing the party and we see everything starting to spiral, we don't focus on the nudity. One of the things that really bothered me about Project X was how this supposedly adult camera was willing to focus on these half-naked women. And in the party scenes in Better Luck Tomorrow, it's a quick flash. It's just one part of a drug and alcohol and cultural produced nightmare. That's what made Better Luck Tomorrow a step above high school or even college aged movies was that it really just delved straight into that chaos of emotion and influences instead of allowing one or the other, be it sexuality or drugs, overwhelm it all. One of the things I want to touch back on that you had brought up was about the portrayal of women in the film. And one thing I've always liked about Lynn as a filmmaker is he takes films where, for example, this one's a 90s high school dramedy, if you will, where in a lot of these films, it's typically about the males trying to get laid. You might get the odd one or two films that come from a female perspective, but it's usually very much testosterone heavy, all about getting the girls. And the girls are nothing but objects. And even in the Fast and Furious franchise, where again, you can look at them as just mindless action movies with big explosions, he always finds a way to play up the women's strengths and make them smart. Like I love in this film, there's a great scene where Ben, being the overachiever, finishes the assignment to give to Stephanie. She rips it up and is basically like, we're doing this as partners. I am your equal. Don't you dare try to do the work for me. Throughout the film, you see how smart she is. And I would even argue, I know a lot of people don't like Tokyo Drift, but I personally think it's a fantastic film. And the character in that, I think it's Nella. There's a great moment in that film where the lead character is asking her about, well, how come I've never seen you do any drifting? And she's like, well, you've never asked. And the next scene is showing her handling the card just as well. He always puts women in a positive light. Even if you have like a gratuitous scene, I think it's like in Fast Five where Giselle literally gets a person's handprint by tricking him into touching her derriere the rest of the film you actually see that Giselle can fight drive do everything just as well as the men right like he doesn't stoop to those shallow moments and it was great to see that it even started way back when with this film that he still gives females strong positive roles and makes them interesting characters like it would been great if there was even more Stephanie in this film but I really liked how she was handled throughout this movie there's a lot that suggested about Stephanie's strength either with the way that she kind of hints towards Ben that yeah it's okay for you to make a move buddy and I love that you mentioned how Lynn presented women moving forward because he's one of the people who made Michelle Rodriguez a central part of the Fast and Furious franchise and Rodriguez along with Gina Carano had the single best fight scene with the Fast and Furious franchise with the sixth film when they were tied to each other and then beating each other senseless in the subway station with the cement and the handlebars and everything like that. And with Better Luck Tomorrow, we get that idea immediately 
that these women, they're not going to passively go through with the men's motions. That's one of the reasons that one of the ending scenes is so affecting to me. Ben was just going to go through his life emotionless, in a sense, after they kill Steve. But it's because of Stephanie that he decides he wants to feel something, and why one of the closing lines of dialogue is, I'm going to go along with this. I don't know what it's going to lead to, but that's where I'm going. And the thing with that closing moment is it's both somewhat optimistic, but also kind of sad because you don't know if him moving forward is him going to college. Is it him paying for the death of Steve by going to jail? There's so much ambiguity in that ending, yet the fact that Stephanie's there makes it almost comforting. You kind of get the sense that no matter what's going to happen, she will hopefully be by his side, even as a friend, to kind of see him through that tough aspect. That was one of the things I remember when I first saw this film. Was their lives are ruined, because even if they move on to bigger and better things, they'll still have his death hanging over them. And then I was thinking, well, would they even get away with it? They've lived, quote-unquote, the perfect image, but as we see that it's crumbling. People are starting to see who they really are, so maybe they don't get away with it, right? So I really like the way how Lynn leaves the ending open, so depending on how you view it, you know, you might think better days are ahead, or it could just possibly get worse, but either way, he's going to feel something. With that, we are concluding our first episode of Changing Reels. Courtney, anything else you want to add before we go? Well, I just want to give a quick shout out to the folks at Modern Superior. They've been kind enough to support our vision, so I just want to give them their fair due and go there and check out all the other great podcasts that are going to be on that network. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the show and come back to the next episode. We've got a great list of directors and films that we're going to be bringing to you in the near future. If you want to contact us, please leave a message either at the Modern Superior website can't stop the movies or cinema access i'm also available at can't stop drew through twitter courtney do you have a twitter handle uh yep you can reach me on twitter at smallmind. and if you want to see something that you think is part of cinema's future send us a suggestion so this has been andrew hathaway from can't stop the movies and courtney small from cinema access thank you for tuning in folks This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.